0: A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Now, you might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, of course, you'd be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. Now, today, we're going to be joined by historian and author Tom Holland. We'll dig into some of the themes of his book, Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world and look ahead to the future of our nation. But first, on Sunday, world leaders, negotiators, business representatives and international organizations land in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt for the United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP27 now. It's difficult to believe that one year has already passed since Glasgow hosted COP26. In the last 12 months, we've seen more clearly than ever the catastrophic impacts of climate change. In Pakistan, an eight week monster monsoon flooded one third of the country's habitable land and destroyed more than one million homes. Kenya, Somalia and Ethiopia experienced their worst droughts in over 40 years. In Bangladesh and India, nine and a half million people were stranded by the worst flooding for a century. And we've seen the impact here at home too. The UK experienced a new record high temperature of 40.3 degrees centigrade. We felt utterly helpless as the villages of Ashill and Wennington were torn apart by devastating wildfires. The material impacts of climate change on people whom God created and whom he loves is clearly a decree for Christians to step in and play our part. But even if drought, famine and flooding weren't a reality affecting billions, our command as Christians to care for God's world would still stand. John Stott spoke about how God intends our care of the creation to reflect our love for the creator. We love creation because he first loved us. We've spoken before about why we as Christians should care about the climate threat and how to avoid being dragged off by the culture war, which can sometimes surround it. So today, I want to think briefly about how we can care. Firstly, we can choose to live differently. It can feel like changing our lifestyle is nothing more than a drop in the ocean, but that doesn't mean we should not try. God is accustomed to using the small offerings that we can bring, and we are told not to despise the day of small things. And our example might make friends, family, or colleagues take notice, not just of our climate values, but of Jesus, who is the foundation of those values. Again, John Stott said, I sometimes wonder if there is anything more essential to evangelism than the Christ likeness of the evangelist. You could swap out your peanut butter or shampoo for a palm oil free brand, switch to a bank account that doesn't invest in fossil fuels or make a habit of visiting the charity shop to see what's there. Just to be clear, I'm definitely not sponsored, but I can recommend the Ethical Consumer website and magazine or the Just Love Guide to Ethical Living to get you started. But change does also need to come from the top down. So secondly, Christians should call on governments and businesses to account for their policies and practices which harm God's good creation. TIER Fund's It's Time to Deliver campaign calls on the UK government to ensure the promise made in 2009 to give $100 billion a year to help climate vulnerable nations is met. Christian Aid's Hack the Agenda campaign is asking world leaders to make polluters pay for the damage they cause. Let's pray for them as they attend COP27 and continue to meet with MPs in Parliament. You can add your voice by signing their petitions online or going to see your MP or writing to them. Against the backdrop of domestic, economic and cost of living crises, the war in Ukraine and our emergence from a pandemic, there is a real danger that climate change can feel a crisis too far something that we haven't got the time to deal with just now. But if we are to love our neighbours and to be obedient to God in caring for his good creation, then we do not have the right to treat global warming as anything less than our greatest earthly threat. Left or right, red, blue or yellow, if we are Christians, then the threat of catastrophic climate change is real and we need to respond with compassion and wisdom. We face a massive problem, but then again, we have a massive and awesome God. So as we always say on this show, don't panic, but do care, care deeply and care practically. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, so to our guest this week, we're delighted to be speaking to the author and historian, uh, Tom Holland, just back from the States. How are you? I feel a little bit jet lagged, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. So, uh, but, you know. Bright and up, bright and early, even though for me, it's the kind of, you know, what is it? It's the middle of the night, I think. I'm sure you're as bright as the rest of us. You may have come down from your normal high standing. I'll do my uh, best. Like the rest of us now. So, uh, but Tom, let's start off and ask you a little bit about faith. What do you mean by faith or what does faith mean to you? On a personal level, am I a Christian? Yeah. Um, Well,
1: in the most fundamental sense, yes, because uh, I've come to the conclusion that in almost everything I, I think and believe, is so shaped by Christianity that it would be insane for me um, not to be, not to identify as Christian. But obviously for, for, for most Christians, believing in God and is, is an essential part of it. And I do slightly struggle with that. Um, I, was, I was raised in the Church of England. Um, my mother remains for me an absolute kind of model of, of how to behave. Um, I, she, she's a very, very devout Christian. Um, I had never kind of regarded Christianity as something to be rejected in a kind of dramatic, Byronic way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it just kind of faded for me. Uh, and I think the reason it faded for me was that I was, um, I, I was much more drawn to the kind of the glamour and the swagger and the allure of, of Greece and Rome I preferred mm. the Greek gods to the Christian God. Mm. And to be honest, if you'd asked me whose side would I be on, uh, Pontius Pilate or Jesus, I would have been on Pontius Pilate. And in a way, I, my adult life, I spent writing about Greece and particularly Rome. Mm. But the reason that I, I, I ended up deciding, actually, I'm not Greek or Roman at all, I'm profoundly Christian, was mm. the experience of realizing how alien these cultures were. And so I've, I, I do feel Christian, but I, I would like to go the whole hog. <laughs> I, you know, I'd I'd like to to hang for a sheep as, a, you know, I might as well hang for a sheep as well as lamb. I would like to believe in the resurrection. I would like to believe in the angels. I'd like to believe in all that kind of stuff. And I, I, there are times where I do, and there are times
0: where I don't. Right. This is amazing. I mean, I, I would um, just something I came across the other day: the notion of of faith being not how you how strongly your faith is felt in a thing, but how strong the thing in which you have your faith held in is. If you're jumping off a cliff or you fall off a cliff, more likely, and you grab hold of a tree sticking out of it and it saves you, it's not the confidence that you had in that tree that saves you. <laughs> right. Just, well, me. <laughs> I, I you see, I think um, that
1: for me it's perhaps... Uh, it's about trying to find kind of rhythms. So, it, so one of the things I noticed in the lockdown was that my sense of time had been completely dissolved. The yeah. punctuation marks that enable you to mark the passing of the year had basically been erased. And so I started marking the, uh, the rhythms of the Christian year mm. because I'd found doing, doing the work on um, Dominion, my book about the history of Christianity, that uh, these were incredibly important. And in a sense, they seem to have been erased from a lot of the Christian understanding. Mm. I think because because we've been modernized, because we've gone through the Industrial Revolution, because of the 20th century, um, our sensitivity to the rhythms of the year had been dissolved, but finding, but going back to to, to those Christian festivals and Mm. reflecting on everything that People had written about them, how they'd experienced them and kind of in a way meditating on them, I do find has provided a kind of structure to the air and to my ability to uh, feel what Christianity had meant to past generations of Christians.
0: So let's just look at that. So the the thesis, if you like, behind Dominion, and you tell me if I've got this wrong. Um, but obviously, its subtitle is "The Making of the Western Mind." Here, I here I have it, my well-thumbed copy. It's a um, lovely thing to see. Yes, indeed. You would like to hear? I've got a viz uh, viz bookmark, which is rather kind of. That's um, uh, <laughs> yeah, very intuitive. <laughs> intuitive. <laughs> there you go. But but the the making of the Western mind. The thesis is that society, Western culture, dare I say it, small L, small D, Western liberal democracy, is really hard to imagine and almost impossible to understand without considering uh, the role that Christianity has had in, in shaping it. So if you can unpack that in a minute or two. Well, well it's, it's a cliche way of putting it, but, but essentially my argument
1: is, is that we are goldfish swimming in, in Christian waters mm. and that we... The the influence of Christianity on the way that we believe, think, our assumptions, our attitudes, even the very words that we use, Mm. is so saturated in in Christianity that um, in a way we've come to mistake it for human nature. Mm. Uh, the, The temptation for us is to assume that the things that we think are just... have are natural to humanity across the, the entire face of the planet and, and back through time. And I think it gives us a kind of cultural arrogance. We assume mm-hmm. that the things that we believe are givens and we measure everybody else against that, but but they're culturally contingent. And one of the things, one of the things, one of the strange things about Christianity is that I think it contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. It It, most obviously perhaps, it has as its core symbol someone being tortured to death by an oppressive state apparatus and so even as it aspires to convert the entire world it is also suspicious of the means that are required to do that and so people progressives I think today are very tempted to view Christianity as hegemonic so the title of my book is Dominion and you know there's a there's a there's a kind of dual meaning there. There's the spiritual dominion, but there's also the political dominion. Mm. And so what, what progressives in the West have been very effective at is condemning Christianity, but for highly Christian reasons. They repudiate, you know, they uh, invariably, where they are rejecting Christianity, they're doing it for reasons that are rooted in Christian morality or the Christian or Christian narratives. And that means that it's very easy for us to assume that things like human rights secularism whatever democracy are somehow abstracted from the historical context that gave them birth and that
0: produced them And so your argument would be that if we look at other cultures which have been uh, less christianized um and don't have christianity as a kind of underlying um core if you can have an underlying core but basis that the, the language of and the understanding of rights of separation of of, of uh, State from religion and democracy and so on, that those things haven't appeared in the same way. So what do you think it is about Christianity that means that we have got that this sense of justice, equality, human rights in the West? Well, if you look at human rights, um, this emerges
1: from a, from a, a very distinct, process of political and cultural change that happened across Western Europe, Latin-speaking Europe, in the the 11th and 12th centuries. And um, essentially, the revolutionaries that had taken command of um, of the Roman church, and therefore the apparatus of the entire church across Western Europe, wanted to separate the what they saw as the, the the bond the religio that joined humanity to the the radiant eternity of heaven and they wanted to separate it out from the dimension of what they called the cyclum which is basically the kind of the span of human life so by extension the flux that all living creatures are are, are prey to and that their their ambition was to stop kings and emperors and so on having any say in the dimension of the church mm. And this, in turn, meant that they had to set up a framework of justice that uh, people could appeal over the head of, say, um, earthly kings, and that required them to have a, a framework of law. Uh, and so they started. You know, it, unlike Judaism, unlike Islam, Christianity doesn't have a kind of a, a corpus of legal rulings that supposedly derive from a deity. So lawyers, um, and this is this is the whole kind of beginning of universities, basically people from across Europe start to gather to, 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 to try and construct a, a corpus of law that will enable um, uh, the, the, the church to know how they can provide justice to, to people. And so they look at the New Testament and there they read that Christ says that um, the rich have an obligation to care for the poor. You know, if they're thirsty, then you should give them water. If they're, uh, if they're naked, you should give them clothes. And that the, the, the corollary of that, of course, is that um, if the rich have a duty to give the poor these various things, then the the poor have a right to have them. And it's essentially that insight that over the course of the centuries, and evolving, of course, in response to all kinds of developments, such as the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, and so on. But that is the, co- that is the origin, that is the wellspring of our concept of rights. And it's a very potent one. And it's one that c- uh, can be abstracted from the Christian context and kind of packaged as something that is universal, but it's not in, in, its, in its source, it's not universal. As you see, for instance, with say with China, in dialogue with China, China is a great and ancient civilization, a great civilizational power. Um, And the, the assumption of Western human rights lawyers that there must be human rights in the legacy of Chinese history, reflects, I think, a form of Western arrogance. A mucky business with Tim Farron.
0: We're talking to the historian and author, Tom Holland. Tom, that understanding that for example, China being a great civilization but with a very different concept of what human rights means versus the West with a kind of Christian understanding of human rights that we have a duty to the poor and therefore the poor have rights to us to perform those duties. Does that in your mind, any way, in any way clash with the a kind of a Christian understanding that uh, yes, our culture does form us, but also if we are made in the image of the creator, then we have his fingerprints prints on us and indeed in our morality that we know right from wrong. We have an imprint of morality upon us in our DNA because we're made in the image of, of God. Do you think there is a clash between nature and nurture? Is it possible to believe that both are the case? Well, you asked me about my, you know, my, my
1: faith. When I, when I believe, I believe that, um, that that, as Paul says, the law is written on the heart. But when I don't, I see it all as just culturally contingent and Mm. that our understanding of morality is just one of multiple shades of morality, Mm. that the very different understanding of morality that, say, the Spartans or the Romans had, Mm. are they any less valid? Mm.
0: In in which case, then I guess what you're suggesting is that the, the things that many people who account themselves as progressives, as small L liberals um, across the political spectrum in the West, the things that they, we count as being all important, they are related to a Christian understanding of the world. And if that's the case, if there is a decline of the West, which I think there probably is in our influence in, in the world, um, might that be because the West is getting cut off from the values that underpinned? it? Uh, well
1: i think if you talk about the decline
0: of the west
1: uh, it's an it's an economic and a geopolitical decline mm. and i think the corollary of that is that therefore our cultural influence starts to fade um and i think a measure of that say is you you talked about the secular the that thing I was talking about the Pope and the, and the, the, the kings and the emperors in the early Middle Ages mm. it may seem kind of impossibly distant from 21st century geopolitics, but it isn't actually. Because in the long run, that sets up the idea of there being these two dimensions, religio and the cyclin, religion and the secular, as it comes mm. to, to be understood. And, and when the West, when Western powers go out into the world and conquer India or uh, sweep across the North American continent or whatever. They are taking their cultural assumptions with them, that there are th- that you know, that there are dimensions of religion and the secular. So in India, for, for instance, this is where it's the British who invent the notion of Hinduism, of there being a religion called Hinduism. Mm. And the, the measure of the impact of that is that when the British leave India, they leave behind the idea that India should be a secular state, that there should be a kind of neutral zone with religion's kind of, you know at a remove from that secular yeah. zone and that's what uh, Narendra Modi the current prime Minister of India is mm. vehemently against yeah and from our perspective we're like to say well you know how can anyone be against secularism but yeah you know from the point of view of a a a, a, a man who sees himself as a defender of Indi- India's ancient Hindu ways mm. you can entirely see why he'd be against secularism yeah. because he would see it as a kind of a, a a foreign western
0: basically christian importation yes and for us you know for example the, the withdrawal from afghanistan the um maybe the, the chickening out sometimes you might think of taking action against assad or putin until potentially it was it was too late do those things possibly have any link uh, to the fact that um western societies are run by people who basically aren't uh, practicing Christians anymore, and there maybe are cut off from the source the values that they claim to espouse that have anything to do with the kind of lack of confidence that uh, liberal democrats in I, cultures may have now in what they think well I, I I think that that we live in the shadow of the
1: Iraq war, mm. and the um i think I think so both both Bush and blair were were very devoutly. Christian, uh, but I don't think they they saw themselves as invading for Christian reasons. No. They they equated their gut Christian assumptions about how the, what the world is like with a, a, a sense of you know this was this was this transcended culture mm. that that Muslims as well as Christians had basically worshipped the same God, mm. and I think that that was shown to be disastrously untrue. And so, to the extent that um, Bush and Blair were going into Iraq not uh, adequately, I think, appreciating that their assumptions and those of um, that that are the inheritance of Islamic civilization are mm. different, there was some force to the accusation that they were crusaders, because mm. ultimately. You know, the crusaders also were going to the middle east because they believed that what they were doing was right mm. I, and i think that that is that is the problem that has always hedged christians the the desire of christians to to intervene in the world beyond for the world's own good the risk is always that it ends up becoming violent and that's always been the tension at the heart of of the relationship of christian of christian of christians and let's call it Christendom, to the world that lies beyond Christendom.
0: And it's a very, very difficult tightrope to tread. With a a world that is rapidly changing, with church attendance in the West pretty much at an all-time low, and yet attendance in China and Africa, for example, going through the roof, um, what do you think the future might hold for the impact of uh, Christianity and Christian understanding on, on world politics going forward? Big big question, you've got about 60 seconds, Tom. Well, I think
1: I think that um, the, the fastest growing Christian denomination is Pentecostalism, which mm. has very, very committed to this idea of the spirit moving. And I think if you look at uh, Africa, in fact, if you look at um, South America and the impact mm, of Pentecostalism yeah. on, on the very, very Catholic countries of, of South America, if you look at China, Korea, and so on, I think you, you do have the sense of the spirit blast of the Pentecostal flame moving through the world. Likewise, I, I think that in the West, um, institutional Christianity is in decline, but um, the impact of Christianity isn't. Mm. Um, our assumptions and our values and our morals remain so profoundly influenced by Christianity that you could almost say that um, our, our, our post-Christian secularism is itself... So Christian has to be a form of Christianity.
0: Mm. I feel like an almost perfect place to stop. But one final thing I want to uh, raise with you and ask you, uh, you hinted at it earlier on. When I saw you speak, I think it was the LSE at the Open Doors um, uh, lecture that you you gave a little while ago last year. I think it was. You talked about um, y- your experience of being seen the aftermath of crucifixions in the former ISIS held Um, uh, territories and it gave you a a kind of new insight into the real peculiarity of there being a world religion whose central symbol is a is a is a symbol of crushing defeat tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah so this was a, a film i made in 2016 um, and it was basically asking the question of why the Islamic State had targeted Christians and Yazidis in the way that they had, and why they had targeted the Yazidis in particular for, for genocide. And so we went to this town Sinjar, which had been the major center for um, the Yazidis and where terrible atrocities had been committed. And we went there um, a few weeks after the Kurds had liberated it, but ISIS was still kind of a couple of miles away uh, over the no man's land. And for me. I had read so much about the Romans. And when the Romans capture a city, they crucify the men and they enslave the women. And to go into a city where exactly that had happened, where men had been crucified and where women had been enslaved and indeed young girls had been enslaved, opened up this kind of existential sense for me of what it would have been like, what it is like to be in a world where the cross means for people what it had meant for the Romans. That it's an emblem of power, that it's an emblem of their uh, their right to torture to death those who oppose them. and and that this this torture is 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 seen as good, is seen as a moral positive. And um, i I came back from that, and I rewrote the opening to Dominion to focus very much on the crucifixion and the weirdness of an emblem to the Romans was was an emblem of power becoming an emblem of the opposite. Um, and all the paradoxes that are kind of bundled up with that, because, of course, in the long run, the cross is now the most recognized symbol that humanity's ever had. Um, and so, again, that, that idea that its dominion is both spiritual and political, and all the paradoxes associated with that.
0: Well, Tom, I know my, my, my final, obviously, biased Christian word on this is that you wouldn't invent a religion like that. <laughs> that, that, that surely has to be something <laughs> God-given, which is so utterly uh counterintuitive but tom it, absolute pleasure talking to you i wish we had longer um and but to recommend uh the book dominion to all of our listeners uh it, it's a wonderful wonderful book tom you're working on another book you've got something coming out soon i have uh next year it's a book
1: called pax and it's about the heyday of the roman empire so uh it it, it includes the, the sack of jerusalem by the legions pompey hadrian great
0: stuff wonderful we're looking forward to it and um, tom An honour to have you on the show. Thank you ever so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Each week, we give you, the listener, the opportunity to ask any question you would like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So drop me an email to farren at premier.org.uk. This week, James has been in touch and he asks the following. I particularly remember the newspaper profile about you a few years ago, where an anonymous Lib Dem colleague was quoted as calling you, and I quote, a treacherous God-botherer, close quote. So my question is particularly personal. How do you, as a Christian, deal with the ruthlessness, anger and sheer nastiness which seems to be the norm in politics? Now, this was a few years ago. And I think it was during the coalition when I'd voted against the party line on something or other. And I, it may or may not have been as a direct consequence of my faith. Uh, looking back on it, you can probably tell from my tone, I find the line quite amusing. But having said that, I suppose if I was, um, I mean, God botherer is a phrase that is, is is used as a slur. And if it was a slur used about somebody of another faith or another background, you can be sure that, Uh, there would have been action taken and very swiftly. So maybe it is true that Christians uh, don't have the same level of protection when it comes to discrimination as as other groups. I always say, um, as a Christian, all of that doesn't bother me too much as a Christian. Because we're told we're gonna to be gonna be persecuted and suffer. And being slagged off of it is not much of a persecution compared to people um, in other countries who are believers. Um, but it does trouble me as a liberal um, that we discriminate against people because of their faith. And you ask more gen- generally, James, about how we deal with the nastiness and the unpleasantness that it's in politics. Look, it's a great challenge to us as Christians to make sure we don't follow that route, that we remain gracious. And if we do lose our temper, our cool or indeed act in a way which isn't gracious ourselves, that we repent of it privately and to god but also publicly we have an opportunity just to live differently and to play the uh, the player and not the ball if you like and as others have said before me to uh, behave as though we belong far more to the kingdom than we do to our tribe so it's a challenge but it actually it's quite a good opportunity for us to shine and be different if you have a question for tim email at premier.org.uk. Well, let's join together in prayer as we end our time uh, this week together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for all those people going to COP27. We pray for the leaders who aren't there, China and India and other important powers who may be represented there in some small way, but their leadership isn't, apparently. We lift up the leaders of all nations that at COP27 and away from that table, uh, there would be discussions that would lead to real action that would put the care and nurture of your creation at its heart and love of our neighbors also at its heart, remembering always that our neighbors includes people we've never met and indeed who've not yet been born. It is our care for them, our love for them, which should guide how we uh, ensure that we protect our planet, give us wisdom, give our leaders wisdom that action will be taken, ambitious action that will make people's lives better and avert disaster. Um, We thank you for all those people who uh, work in the world of uh, politics in this country and in particular around the Treasury and the government as they think about their plans for uh, the autumn statement that they would consider the poor, they would consider those who are most in need as they draw up their plans. We thank you for Tom Holland. We thank you for all those who look at the history that surrounds the writing of the Gospels and the establishment of the Christian faith. Um, We pray that as they look at the facts that you would speak to them um, simply and to their hearts and draw them to put their trust in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to speak about the Gospel in this country and that we have that freedom. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. been wonderful to have you with us. See you soon.